Welcome to the Not Your Average My podcast, where four Hmong American women working to move our community forward one conversation at a time. So tune in every month with Liz, Mania, Monica, and Katie as we dive into politics, pop culture, and all things related to being Hmong American. Let's get it! Hi listeners, welcome back to Not Your Average My. Today we'll be discussing the George Floyd murder by the Minneapolis police officers and the current mass protests that are happening across the country right now. It's been a really tough week for all of our communities, especially our black and brown brothers and sisters across the country. We know that this incident isn't isolated. We've seen this in the cases of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Eric Gardner, Mike Brown, Alton Sterling, and the list goes on and on. So this episode is timely and important. We want to connect this to why building political power and coalition is important. We have a very special guest with us today, Nancy Hyung from Hmong Innovating Politics, also known as HIP. Nancy is the Director of Development and Communications at HIP, and HIP really focuses on how to strengthen the political power of Hmong and disenfranchised communities in California. So super excited to have her here to really provide the voice of the community and why community organizing is so crucial to really fighting for social justice, racial justice, and for a just democracy for our communities. So Nancy, super excited to have you. Before we start, can you share a little bit about your role at HIP and how HIP uh, came to be? Sounds good. Hi, everyone. Um, this is Nancy Zhang, and I just wanted to say thank you for having me on here. Uh, I'm just really excited. I'm a big fan of uh, your podcast and um, just super honored to be able to talk to you all about what we've been building in uh, California, specifically in Sacramento and Fresno. Yeah, so I am the director of development communications, um, but I've been a, but before I jumped on staff, I was board member and also super volunteer for HIP um, for the last eight years. We started in 2012 um, as you know, just a really a, a small group of young Hmong professionals. Um, some of us had recently graduated from college. Some of us have been working at the you know at, in, at just the different local nonprofits, um, working at the state, at the county level. And I think a lot of us were just trying to find a space um, and a platform um, for like progressive voices like our own, right? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so super excited to have you here because I feel like a lot of Hmong orgs are not engaged in the, in the political process. And sometimes a lot of people are like, oh, I don't wanna be involved in politics, right? But it's part of HIP's identity, really engaging disenfranchised communities in the political process. Um, so our conversation today about building political power and coalition building, you know, it's super timely and important. Like I had mentioned before, we've seen the mass protests at, that have been happening in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and across the country. So while a lot of protesters were out there protesting peacefully, you know, police responded with terror gas, rubber bullets, pepper spray, and so much violence. We've also seen looting and violence in different neighborhoods, you know, stores being vandalized, uh, buildings being burned down. And then recent news have shared that, you know, these white supremacist groups were taking advantage of this crisis and actually inciting violence and burning down businesses and buildings as well. So I want to make this connection to HIPAA a little bit, but I also want to get your reflections about what's been happening, especially, you know, Monica, Katie, and Liz. I know that what's been happening in Minnesota, like this is your hometown. How are your families doing? Let's try to process that as well. Thanks, Benio. Um, maybe I'll 
take a stab at it first because I, I think I, I think I feel a little bit better today, but I'll be honest, it's been a really hard week. Mm-hmm. Um, I think harder just because we're not home or since I'm, you know, I'm in California now, I'm not at home with my folks and just worrying about like how to ensure their safety, but also, you know, be part of the, the movement and support our communities because now is like the time, right? But um, yeah, it's been really hard just because I feel like we're balancing and battling so many things, right? Like trying to educate our family members on one side and trying to support, you know, Black Lives Matter on the other side, but then also trying to acknowledge the pain that's been going on. Tough for me. I can go next. Um, This is Katie. I'm also living right now in St. Paul. So this is in our backyard. And, you know, it's been a really emotional, of course, you know, there was a lot of anger. And then, you know, when you see your city and your building, start to burn and you think about these are the stores that you go to these are the restaurants you eat at these are places that you've been around since a child the neighborhoods that you live in um Mm -hmm. you know i guess it's it's really hard and exhausting to have these conversations that need to be had and it's with your family and with your friends and trying to educate them and just try to Say that you know it's not just about them it's about all of us and to do that we need to all join together and support Black Lives Matter and stuff it's been exhausting emotional and it's hard um, I'm also a, a teacher and you know I think of my students and especially my black students who are living through this and this is their everyday life that we're only getting a little taste of I think Monica and Katie said it really well Um, I think for me, I mean, this whole week, right, like I have been fighting with like family and friends trying to educate them, um, you know, about their anti-blackness and, uh, but I think yesterday was, was different because it was so scary, right? Like when, Mm -hmm. um, my own dad was like, yeah, there's all this intel, right? And, you know, um, the governor and the mayors were like, yeah, like we know these are people coming in from out of town. So, um, you know, it really gave me pause to thinking about how we speak to um, members of our community who um, may be less educated or like less exposed to, you know, the things that we've been lucky and privileged enough to be exposed to. And then I've, I've been this year, I've been like doing a lot of more like in language Hmong stuff, just because that's kind of the path that I've been on. Um, so I was telling Monica this, it was like really hard to even like try to start like translating a lot of that because you know that like, you know, your community has gone through trauma so much before. And so, I mean, for me, I'm just like, I don't know why I'm so affected, but I know like this is probably part of the trauma that, you know, our generation is still working through because I just know like part of it is because I just, you know, love, you know, our elders so much, but part of it is also like, like understanding just, you know, where they're coming from. So. I know it's so tough and I feel like it's definitely going to, it's going to continue taking time to be able to process what's been happening. Right. And like, I feel like our hearts are with, our families, these small businesses, but then we also have space in our heart to be, to empathize with the black community going through this tragedy and so many more, you know, tragedies that will happen if there's no justice. 
Um, so, you know, Nancy, I really want to get your take on this and really connect this back to HIP, right? So HIP's mission is about building political power, especially within disenfranchised communities in California. And, and we've seen the systemic oppression happening over and over again to Black and brown communities, right? So how can, politi- how can building political power address systemic oppression of Black and brown communities? And what does that even mean, right? So if you can kind of help tie in this, uh, tie this for us um, and really connect this back to what's been happening um, all across the country. Sounds good. Yeah. You know, I, I think this, and maybe I, I have so much white hair right now. That I'm like, <laughs> every time I, this is like my quarantine hair, right? It's like a half bun. And like, it literally there's like white hair everywhere. And I, I, you know, I, I feel like as, you know, I, it, it, it is very tough in California. You know, I, I think in California, I always, you know, I prize that we are like, you know, super progressive. Right. Um, but there are a lot of areas in California that aren't progressive, right? Um, and being long innovating politics, like oftentimes I think we also carry the weight of, you know, representing, you know, a communities of color, but at the same time also knowing that we're long American and like those two identities. And then also, you know, um, there, there is a lot of weight that comes with it because folks are always turning to us and like saying like, oh, what do you, what do you all think? What do you all feel? Right. And so, um, we always try our best. And like, I think our staff has just been wonderful. And I think they're all processing as well in terms of just like figuring out how to also work their biases and their anti-blackness as well. And like, how do, how are they processing? Right. Um, and so for sure, like, I think moving forward, it's, it's definitely not a, a sprint, but a marathon. Right. Um, and these conversations need to be had in order for things to be able to change. Um, and so I, you know, I think I'll go first into kind of defining what political power, um, really building political power, what it really means for us. And it's really about, you know, community members being able to control what happens in their own neighborhoods and in the schools, like their kids attend. Right. Um, and oftentimes it is the absence of that, right. Like folks making those decisions for us, thinking that they know us best, right. Or that thinking that they're, they're doing us a favor, they're taking care of us and, really at the end of the day, like no one has it, no one is looking out for your communities. And that is the reality that we are always faced with, right? Whenever things happen at the local level, people say like, you know, I think folks are always waiting for what is elected officials or the county or the city to really step up. And oftentimes that hasn't been the case, like, especially with COVID-19, I think we've rarely seen the gaps, everything that, you know, our communities um, have all always like fought for. It's like much. It's even needed more needed now than ever. Um, and we've seen that as well. And you know, I think the word power is really important because it's like the ability to know that you deserve more and better, but also knowing what better is, right? Like you know, I often go back to the story of you don't know you're poor until someone tells you you're poor, right? Like you grew up yeah. in these areas. And so it's like that we want to be able to build that power, not just like the political part of it, but the power that folks feel that they deserve more, that, you know, that they belong in the United States as much as anyone else. And really, it's about really taking ownership um, of the decision over the decision making. Right. Like, how do we how do we be part of our communities? Um, How do we educate ourselves? How do we make sure that policies, elected officials um, are also, was it, um, was in, in tune to what our needs are, um, and holding them accountable because it's like, not just about voting, but it's like, 
what happens after voting, you know, um, because if you don't keep them accountable, who else will? Yeah, so I, you know, I'm kind of curious, can you share some examples of HIP's role in helping helping build this political power within um, the communities in the Central Valley, right? Because we, we've seen a situation like George Floyd in Sacramento before. Like this isn't new to, to um, the communities in Sacramento or Fresno. So when, for times like this, when black and brown people continue to die at the hands of law enforcement, like how, how have you all tried to address that through building political power? Yeah, I mean, I, if I'm going to be honest with you all, like the strongest coalitions to partnerships that we have are communities of color, right? Like our Latino communities or nonprofits that we've been working with, our Black um, Black American communities that we've been working with, like they are the strongest. We we don't really have a lot of like Hmong, other Hmong organizations that we work really closely with um, that, you know, have similar missions as us. Um and so, like, through that way, I think we've had to find, like, our place as well in, in just the work that we do, knowing that the political part, building the political part hasn't been the conversations that our communities are having, right? You know, it, it's a lot of um, direct services, right? Because when Southeast Asian refugees came to the United States, that, that was what was needed at the time. Um, and oftentimes, I think, you know, the local nonprofits ha- hasn't transitioned into Okay, we've been over. We've been here for over forty-five years. Like, what does that, what does that look like for us now, right? And so, um, I think in a way, it's been like we recognize that you know we will always live amongst like communities of color, right? We've never lived anywhere else. Um, and also knowing that like the power that we build is also with each other. Um, and so, we phone bank a lot for HIP, and in doing phone banking, we're calling voters. Um, during election years, but also off, off election years, right? Um, and it's really to connect with them and also continue building relationships with them so that they are engaged in local politics, you know, um, they know who their elected officials are. And um, in times like this, ideally, like be able to, you know, leverage that and get folks excited about like, okay, like you, you got to stand up, right? And so um, oftentimes, it's just really about um, what is it being able to show up for our communities um, and really hold that space for folks to, I, I, at the end of the day, it's like a platform for folks to be able to do that, right? Um, you know, with our young folks, um, and I'm like so proud of our, our like a youth and our young adult leaders that, you know, my coworker, um, Katie Moore in Fresno, and also my coworker, Mike Ku, uh, Vu, um, has been also building with um, in California in terms of just building a space for them, be able to share like their concerns, because it's legitimate, right? Like the concerns, the experiences that folks, the trauma that folks have gone through is real. Um, But then how do we turn that into action, right? Um, And how do we get them to think deeper about like systematic, you know, oppression and how they've off, how how that plays in plays such a big part in their lives. And so part of it is like the education piece is really important. Um, And then just starting them really young. Can I chime in there? Um, Nancy, thank you so much for just giving us that really nice overview of HIP's work and how you have all begun to really build community and build solidarity. But I want to go back to what you were saying about, um, you know, giving our community power, right, and and engaging those who may not have been engaged before. Like, um, how, how does HIP balance the politics of the Hmong community and also 
being in solidarity with other communities of color, right? And I think this will go into our coalition building conversation because obviously right now, you know, just given with everything that's happened in the past week, like a lot of our people are in pain, right? And a lot of people are angry. Um, like I know for me and like we already mentioned earlier, it's been such an uphill battle trying to convince our family members to empathize and to not justify their implicit racism, you know, through these excuses of like the riots and the damages, et cetera, right? What have you, like how, how does like hip, you know, turn and, and change minds, right? Um, and I know you already started talking about that, but like maybe we, if we can just have some, you know, some deeper examples, like I'd love to, for our people to hear us out uh, to, to really learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, so, you know, in, in our phone banking and our canvassing, um, it, it's really about, having those conversations with people, right? Um, so recently uh, with the COVID-19 work, like, you know, we we were thrown into it, not by choice, but because there was a need, right? Um, and so folks were like, uh, our, our um, my coworkers were checking in on, you know, our the Hmong community, right? Just doing like a health check-in just to see how folks are doing. Um, and like, I think just that small act of calling them had such a big impact on them because they were like, I didn't know people cared about us. You know, like it's like the feeling like you're already invisible. And then when you're able to show that, you know, other folks care about you and folks are are calling you and looking out for you, um, I think it changes the mindsets of how people also choose to use that power and also like how do they insert themselves in these spaces right um and so we were able to have those conversations with voters and so we've been calling voters for the last like four or five years now um and being just those conversations are so important and i don't think we have enough of them um and i think it's so easy to just um you know, post things on social media and then just like have a conversations. But I'm like, is that really a conversation? You know, um, and oftentimes it's like the folks that don't know about it aren't on social media and the folks right. that are most impacted aren't on social media. Right. It's like, who is the loudest? Like, you know, you're playing that game on social media. Who is the loudest? And the folks that are impacted can't even be a part of these conversations because they're not even on there. And so it's really about, you know, being able to talk to folks that are on the ground and that are not on social media that, you know, folks don't usually call or reach out to. Um, and that's just, that's been really important for us um, through all the noise that, you know, that has been going on. Like that's the part that I think, you know, we, we, we want to be able to uplift those voices that aren't being heard. And we don't want it to always be the case to always be that it's like the person who's the loudest. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I hope that answers your question. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm like shaking my head over here on, on our camera. And, and you know, I think you hit that right on the nail, like having those conversations are key, which is, um, I think what I've seen a lot this past week, this weekend of everyone really just finally now entering the, the conversation, right? With, like with our family members, with our friends who've been really silent and passive over you know, the last couple of years, have never really talked about race, um, I think is really key. I, I'm just... All I have to say is, you know, just props to HIP and really impressed because this is really taxing work. And I don't know, you know, how you guys continue to do it when we have all that noise, right? Like how you push through. So 
I think it's really beautiful that you guys called folks, um, you know, during the pandemic and that was really well received because I think, I think you're right. Like sometimes it's just that check-in and that acknowledgement. Um, in my job, we've been doing that a lot too for our constituents. And so um, that's great. And I guess this is kind of, um, it goes back to a question that I had. Um, I mean, generally, like we know what you guys do, but um, could you kind of like break it down? Like, you know, what do, what would you tell someone if they say, okay, like, you know, you're doing this like broad coalition building, mm -hmm. but like, how does that benefit me? And like, you know, how does that translate to somebody, you know, in their like everyday life? Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that that's a really good question. Cause I, I think that is, what is it? You know, folks always come with us for that too, because we don't provide direct service. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like, it's hard because we're like, we don't provide direct service, but we are calling folks. And so I think um, I'll kind of, I'll be able to, I'll break this up into kind of like three, four different categories. And so, um, you know, voter engagement. So integrated voter engagement is like one of it, right? Um, so that means we're calling voters, we're canvassing neighborhoods that normally, uh, that big campaigns would normally miss or would not even try because they're just so, the, the voters there just don't vote enough right and so yeah, oftentimes yeah like oftentimes you have folks who are like 60 and this is they've never voted before right um and so those are that's a that's our target right and to make sure that folks in these areas are voting and then also being able to remove barriers to them um a big thing for us is like language access um so when we phone bank and when we canvas and have conversations with folks like we're able to do it in language, right? Vietnamese, Lao, Hmong, um, Punjabi, um, depending on the region and the area, um, we're able to have those conversations with them um, and be able to push them um, to understand like, oh, what, you know, like voting or like just upcoming issues that are coming up. Um, the other part is our, our youth and young adult leadership development. Um, we, we call it youth justice work because it's not just about developing them, but it's like getting them to understand like a, the systematic oppression that a lot of our communities are going through. Um, and like, that is the injustice, right? Um, and so in our youth justice work, you know, it's really about building them up, um, to see, you know, the oppression, to see, you know, how, um, we, we live amongst communities of color and how they are our neighbors, our friends, um, folks that we go to school with, and that it can't be seen as a Hmong problem, but that it is an issue for everyone, right? Like that we're all going through very similar struggles. Um, and, you know, in, in Sacramento and Fresno, I think to give y'all an like, idea, like our we're a pretty young population, like average age is 21 years old. Um, and so, and there is not a culture of like being civically engaged or, you know, knowing what is, what is it, what's happening at the Capitol or even at the local level. Um, and so it's like, as we're developing these youth and young adults, um, you know, it's really about building them to look at things in a social justice lens, um, building their engagement and like finding their, their, their voice and power. The other part, too, is just like the, you know, the engagement and advocacy part of it, um, making sure that, you know, at the local level, folks know what's happening uh, budget wise, um, 
So for example, you know, like the, the youth fund, right? Being able to have like a designated funding for youth. Um, our folks in Fresno have been working hard to kind of see like, what, what does that look like, right? Um, and like, who needs to be contacted? Who do we need to move? And so it's like, it gets to that level of like tactics, like with finding your coalition of folks that you want to work with, but then also your target, making sure that, you know, your young people know who to talk with, um, how do we move policy? How do they also understand like, okay, after we get this funding, what do you do with this funding, right? And so it's like multiple parts of just, it, it's like the how, the what, and then like giving folks the skills to go and do it, you know, um, and not feel like they have to wait their turn or like to wait for something dramatic or something intense to happen, but that they could be a part of this process. Um, and they can ask for it, right? Like, these elected officials, these counties, these cities, like they're beholden to us because we are, you know, we are, um, what is it? They're constituents. You know, we are the people that matter and uh, they're serving us. And so how do we keep them accountable to our communities? And it's really, I think for HIP, it's like the how, like, how do we get people to do that? What skills do they need um, in order to, in order for our communities to be better, right? Be able to thrive um, and be able to, advocate for the change that we want to see. Yeah, I I think for me, I really appreciate this lens of centering black and brown people and their community needs into the work that you all do. Because, you know, even with these protests that we're seeing, it's really demanding justice and demanding reparations for all of the needs that were not served, right? Like law enforcement didn't uphold to the laws that they should be abiding. So why should black and brown people do, right? So I think for me, with these protests that are happening, it's like everyone is demanding justice. Everybody wants to center the needs of black and brown communities. Yeah, and I I think a lot about, you know, I I think to answer um, or to add on to the question about um, the, the political power and just like, especially during times like this, like, why, why is it important? So it's not like, I, you know, for us, it's like, who holds the power and who makes, who gets to make these decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Who's elected, who's appointed. Um, so, you know, in the case of like George Floyd, right? Like who makes this decision to try the, the, try the cop, right? Like that's the mm-hmm. DA. And then, you, you know, it's like, who makes this decision to fund the police, you know, especially on a campus level or whatever that looks like, like, going to the core, right? Um, in Sacramento, I, I think that, that the work has always been really hard. Like, you know, it's like on one side of it, we do get a lot of shit for like, not just representing Hmong, but then communities of color, disenfranchised communities, right? The other end of it too, it our communities don't vote, right? And so even after the murder of like Stefan Clark, who was a, um, what is it? An on, like he was an armed black man in South Sacramento who died at the hands of police, policemen, right? Even after that happened, the DA mm-hmm. uh, in Sacramento still won off like her, her office, right? Like he, she was still elected mm-hmm. as a result. Like we weren't able to put in anyone progressive. And so it's like, we, we still struggle with that piece, right? Like of how that translates into political power. My, yeah. my follow-up that I wanted to ask Nancy, right? And maybe is another way way to reframe the question, right? It's like, um, I think it is really great and beautiful that HIP is mobilizing the youth, but, um, you know, how have you guys convinced our elders, right? Or, or the, the, the Hmong people in our community that have the power, um, 
because I feel like a lot of the people who have been resistant to racial solidarity or understanding why Black Lives Matter is a lot of our elders who we were really trying to educate. And as we've already mentioned, right, there's been so much rage and anger between our communities and people who are just like, you know, like, F the movements, like, you know, um, F these rioters and looters, like. Can I chime in? Do these people actually have power, though? Yeah, like, I was going to say, Monica, I don't, I don't think that's right. Yeah, I don't think they have no, power. I, I don't know um, if they do, but like. Well, right? actually, there's two but things, like, right? It, it, the it, elders and then, but, but also these back people. To, like, yeah, it goes back to just the question, like, how have we been able to convince the naysayers or the elders or, or everyone who's been like a troll and creating that noise? Because yeah. we know you know, where our base lies with the youth and the the woke folks, right? Or woke folks. Um, so how do, how do we like heal the anger and like bridge the divide? I guess that's the question that I've been trying to get at. Um, I don't think they recognize their lack of political power right now. And if you, if, when you recognize that, I just feel like you just have space in your heart to be, yes, angry at the violence that's been inflicted at these small businesses, at these schools, right? But you won't have space in your heart to also feel the rage and the pain that the Black community feels every single time a Black life is taken unjustly from this world. So when I hear these comments on social media from people who are so anti-Black, I'm like, I don't think you have reached that consciousness yet. I don't think you have reached this understanding of your lack of political power. Because when you understand that, you will understand that, Do like your struggles are so intertwined with the struggles of other black and brown communities, mm-hmm. right? And I, and, you know, just thinking, sorry, this is going to be my reflection of the dance. Feel free to jump in with your, with your, um, with your thoughts, right? Because, you know, I, if people are being so angry that buildings are burning down and that corporations like Target are being uh, looted, they should have space in their heart to be angry that a black life was lost and can never be replaced. So, you know, I think for me, like I, as much as I am on the side of our community and, you know, understanding that these small business owners are immigrant families, are people who look like us or people who are from black and brown communities. At the same time, I also feel like I'm going to take the stance and that property property can be replaced and lives cannot. And society continues to show us over and over again that it cherishes property over people. So this is why for me, I'm like, our community needs to be outraged at the violence that, you know, white institutions continue to inflict on black and brown people. And when you understand that you have that political power, you will be able to do something about it, right? And I think that right now, a lot of folks on social media are just saying all of this crap, but they don't understand what they can do. While I agree that like, you know, a lot of the trolls don't have political power, um, I think Though there are a lot of like Hmong like celebrities, influencers, and politicians who who have their own power and privilege who like don't see that, right? Like and and mm-hmm. like who knows what their complicated reasons are, right? But I'll say his name later. <laughs> but they're they're also right, like very anti-black. Um and I but I think a part of of that, and sorry, I'm prolonging your response, Nancy, is is also that we we are like super complicit in this. Um, you know, capitalist economy, right? That like does not value black and brown bodies, right? Like um, this is what I was trying to get at with other friends and that, yes, like it is really sad if you've worked really hard to, um, you know, put together um, your small business, right? But I was particularly um, upset at one of the, um, you know, Asian businesses that like 
kind of released a social media statement because I was like, you guys like, you know, basically exploit workers all the time, right? Like, and I'm not sure that, you know, you are people that I'd want to support anyway, right? But um, the like my other point is, right, like we we're so complicit in this like um, capitalist economy because that's what we've been thrown in, right? Um, but for me, like I'm all for the revolution because I think we can like reimagine like a a, a different kind of economy where like everybody wins, right? Because like I get people, you know, being concerned about their livelihoods and like being able to survive. Um, but like there's a reason why like you know your communities had to work so hard to cobble everything together to put together this small business that like barely makes it right and that like you have to like exploit people to make a profit right like that's just not okay um and then the other thing is right like people were upset that um this affordable housing complex burned down and that is really sad for all those families who were trying to move there who had plans to move there right but there's a reason why, like, I mean, but why, why are there not four other complexes available, right, for these people to, to move into, right? Like, why is uh, housing mm-hmm. just not affordable in general, right? And so, um, it, I, I mean, I think part of it is like maybe people don't realize their power, but they also like don't know any better, right, and don't understand like mm-hmm. how much they're perpetuating this on their own, right? Um, so sorry to like take it really yeah. bad, but like that, that's just how I was able to explain to folks, like. There's a reason for all the rioting, right? Because like the status quo doesn't work for people in the economy, right? And we're like in the middle of a pandemic. And so, yeah, those people were going to Target and like robbing, you know, for household goods. So they probably need doing, you know, this time when they're like unemployed or whatever too. Like, you know, which is not to say like I condone it, but I understand it, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that just goes to my question. How do we raise that consciousness? And maybe Nancy, now you can answer how how is HIP doing that? How can we replicate that across, you know, our communities in California, Minnesota, et cetera, like all across the the country? Because our mofongs are everywhere, man. They are sometimes. I'm just like, how do you even have the opinions that you have? Like, <laughs> okay, so I think to answer your question, um, our our young people and our elders are probably the easiest to move. It's like the people in between uh, mm. that has been the hardest. And that's the honest truth, right? Um, and so for the sake of our sanity, <laughs> and also because we know how hard this work is, like we choose to decide who is willing, like who is worth also our time and effort to move and who isn't, right? But like, I think the biggest takeaway for us you know, doing this work for the last eight years is that people do care, you know, I think, um, and I agree with my yen that people don't realize their, their political power, right, or their power that they hold. Yes. But because we've been able to engage with folks, like, there has been an increase of folks voting in like certain areas of Sacramento and Fresno, right, like people coming to the polls, uh, people who trust us, you know, like, if we're canvassing, people know who we are, right. Um, and so, it's like the that's like the organizing part that I think a lot of people miss. It's like being on the ground and actually having these conversations with people in real life, you know? And like all I can say is starting young, like <laughs> starting young, like, you know, raising your girls to be fierce and un- like unapologetic um, and then also raising our boys to be more like empathetic, right? Like and being able to talk to our kids about race, um, our nephews, our nieces about that. Um you know, someone had posted that, like, what is it? One of the one of their nephews has said, 
oh, um, you know, black people are bad, right? Like, I'm like, that shit is learned, you know? Like, if you say it so, um, what is it, like, nonchalantly and just saying it out loud, like, yeah, kids pick up on that, you know? And so mm-hmm. being more mindful about what you say. And, you know, I think for hip, it's always been about starting young. And I don't expect to, like, the, the, the change that we want to see is not going to be instant, right? Like, my, my uh, co-worker Katie has been working with her young folks for the last two years and it took a while for her young people to get there but they did but that takes like capacity and time and being able to build them up um and in 10 years we'll see a different generation of you know folks that are woke and are progressive and um have empathy for other communities of color like can see themselves aligning with communities of color we are starting to see just the impact and also see like how they're also pivoting their their mindsets and how they're talking to their parents right like so you know like the census it's like probably it's like political but not as political right but the, our young people are able to talk to their classmates and their families about completing the census and how it's connecting to funding and how their communities can get more funding through that and it's like through those conversations that do give me hope because in this lifetime, I'm like, we may not see what we've been building for. Um, and with the noise, it does get really tiring. Right. But in 10 years, if the world is a better place than how like I grew up in or like what I saw, then like, I know that I did my job. Right. And I know that our, my, 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 our organization, our staff did their job in making sure that the world is a better place. And, but dang, our young people are showing up and they just have the ability to be resilient and like be critical and ask like the, t- the hard questions that I think, you know, as adults, like we're always, we're always, uh, there, there's all, there always has to be a filter and like they're able to just ask it and, yeah. and, and be more raw with those feelings and the, the questions that they ask. Um, and I like, I give props to them because I'm like, dang, like they see it, right? Like we don't think that it's like most people don't think that they don't see or they don't care, but they do, right? Like they're taking it all in and it does impact them. Snaps to that, Nancy. Kudos to hip. Um, and I and, and I think that brings me to our like next, our final questions, right? Like what would, you know, a 15-year-old youth do if they came to you and say, hey, I want to get involved, um, but I don't know how to start. Like what, what's your advice there and how can we continue you know, the community, the people like us continue to support HIP and HIP's work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, it, we're, it's always about like just showing up and seeing if the space is for you. Um, the other part too is just coming in with an open mind, right? Um, and realizing that, you know, educating yourself about what's been happening. Um, and so oftentimes like folks come to HIP and they're, they're, they volunteer, right? They've heard of HIP in some capacity. They volunteer on some of the campaigns that we've worked on. Um, and then from there, like, you know, the art, like I, I pride our staff because they're just so awesome. And they're, they are, they are the ones that hold those relationships. Um, and so time and time again, when folks come back, like staff is able to, you know, build curriculum or, you know, have those conversations with the youth about like not just one off campaigns that they're working on, but like connecting it to like even like a bigger picture, a bigger vision of like why these things are happening. Like, why do we need the census? Why, you know, schools and community first, right? Why are these things happening? 
so that they also get to see like a bigger picture, a bigger framework of systematic, sorry, systematic oppression that, you know, they're also facing, right? Um, and that it's not just like one-off things that are happening in our communities, but they're all connected, you know, like the lack of funding, how budgeting is working at the lo local level, right? Um, and so being being able to see that, but I think the relationships are probably like the most important um, and they're hungry, like they, they want to know more. Um, and I think that really motivates them to come back. Absolutely. Thanks, Nancy. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I think, I, I love that that's one of HIP's commitment, right? To really starting, to really helping youth understand what racial solidarity means at a young age, what coalition building means, what it means to um, to really understand their power and changing their communities. So I, I want to also hold space for our co-hosts to reflect on that. Like, you know, before we kind of close out, like what what's your commitment to to ensure that as well within your families and, you know, immediate community, right? Like there's so much going on right now with anti-Blackness in our community, especially with what's happening in the Twin Cities, systemic oppression against Black and brown people all the time. And our families probably don't understand that and why Black Lives Matter and or why they should support this Black Lives Matter movement. I think for some people, they're just like, oh, it's so violent. I don't want to be involved at all. Just a reflection, like what is your commitment to yourself and uh, in terms of really moving our, like our community forward? Um, I can go ahead first, and I think that it's not always just the big movements like these protests and stuff like that, but it's the uh, daily things that you continue to do and that you do do um, have these conversations and talk to the kids about it because you will be surprised at how smart they are or how simple the answer is and how we as adults have complex it too much to um, to where we don't even know where we're fighting for, or, uh, what grounds we're standing on anymore. Um, this year I have been like fortunate enough to walk into like so many different school buildings and on my first day at one building, I walked into a first grade classroom and these kids were able to identify themselves and by their race, they had this math graph of what what you identify yourself by and I turned around and talked to the teacher and she was like it's fine you know we we talk about this all the time and if they want to identify as whatever they are or something else they can that's their choice and that's their power to see them who they are and I had this boy and there's this boy that went up to the board and you know like he clearly wasn't what he identified himself as but he put it up there and I was just like hmm you know I mean because but like that's what it is though it's like these kids they got to be aware of what race is and they got to have these conversations and teachers and the school system they got to push it and you know um the school that I work for does such a great job with that that's actually one of their main agenda as part of their curriculum is social justice and even my own second grader my daughter is able to come home and tell me about these things and I was just like oh well, this is what we did and walking through the school and it's not just like color sheets and posters, these kids can have conversation and they can talk about things. And these are like first and second graders. And that makes me feel, um, makes me feel good. It makes me feel that, you know, our future generations are going the right directions and what we do every day um, is important and makes sense. And getting a little emotional, <laughs> but um, you know, I mean, it makes it worthwhile, you know, like days are hard and sometimes you don't want to go in, but when you know that the end result is something much better than what we had, then that's what makes you go in. I know that I don't think we ever talked about race throughout my whole um, 
personal educational journey. So, mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty crazy that you don't think about that. You don't talk about that till you get to college where you have to, you, where you can pay um, to have conversations in classes and stuff like that. But, you know, your pre-education never included anything of that. So I'm, I feel good going into this. I mean, I'm definitely emotional right now with all that's going on in our city, but I know that these kids get it. And if they don't, they'll ask about it and we can have these conversations to where they will get it. I'm going to echo everything Katie said. And um, of course, you know, Nancy too, right? Like just the hope that we see from the youth and, um, you know, future generations, millennials, Gen X, Gen Z, whatever, I I don't even know, Um, being willing to engage in these conversations is really inspiring. And then for me, I think just also my commitment is now to continue calling in, calling out, right? My family members, my friends, my inner circle Mm -hmm. circles, because um, like now it's not enough to just be an ally, but to also be anti-racist, right? Like anti-police brutality um, and and to not be passive anymore. Um, So, you know, as taxing and as exhausting as it is, like I have to remind myself that, you know, black and brown people don't get the luxury to take rest, right? And so I'm going to continue to do my part to educate and inform my people because I'll be honest, like I never like in you know, similar to everyone else, like we didn't really know about these things or understand race relations until college and even post-college. And a lot of my inner circle peers were, um, you know, were maybe progressive, but we never really talked about it. We only talked about the Hmong issues, right? Or why it's important to vote. Um, And it's really heartening to see all my close girlfriends now like getting activated or getting involved or at least now being aware and like seeing their consciousness raised is really key. Um, and you know, as hard and as difficult as it's going to be, I'm going to continue like pushing against my family members. Like, I don't care if you're uncomfortable. My job is to make you uncomfortable because we cannot be, uh, comfortable and passive anymore. Um, so that's my personal commitment. And I know it sucks because yeah, like I'm trying to keep in mind and trying to be sensitive to everything that they're also facing. Cause I also feel like kind of hypocritical saying and preaching all these things when I'm not the one enduring all of these things at home. Right. Since I'm in California now, but um, you know, I, I just got to remind myself like we can't be comfortable anymore. And it's, it's, yeah, it's not, it's too late for that. So I kind of agree with Monica, but I, I think I will say like, we don't, I, I actually don't think um, I've given um, you know, like my, my parents and like, some of our elders enough credit because um and, and maybe it's just different because we've talked about this even though we're sisters we have like different experiences um because I mean for me growing up like my mom's always made it very clear right that like you know like we're all in it together um and, and I think for me like that is um that is like kind of like my opening right like I was a person who who put in the question, you know, like, you know, how do we speak with people and not at them, right, or to them? Because um, I think often, right, like as liberals or progressives, right, like we can we can fall into the trap of like doing a lot of like virtue signaling, right, where like I think we speak the language of the revolution, right, but like that sometimes doesn't work with certain people. Um, 
so, you know, my commitment is to, you know, find ways to continue to um, engage and in a way that, you know, resonates with people. Um, I mean, because for me, like, I I know that when I was younger, um, you know, I I was accepted by like um, black friends, black community members in, in many ways. Um, and, and they're the people who, you know, paved a lot of, um, opened a lot of doors for me. Right. And so, um, I, I, I know that like our school system is interesting because we kind of had conversations about race, um, just because I've been like, I was lucky to have some of the teachers I did, but, um, yeah, like that's kind of always subtly there. And I, I think for me, I, I'm going to continue to look for opportunities to, to leverage some of the openings that are among folks like the millennials and like our aunties and uncles, you know, um, are, are able to, to give me. So I think for me personally, you know, sometimes we hate to say it, but there's so much anti-blackness within like our immediate family. Um, Mm -hmm. and it, it sucks to say, to verbalize it because, you know, nobody wants to be called a racist, right? But I think mm-hmm. that there's so much anti-blackness that we need to unlearn within my immediate family. And I, I feel like I'm pretty conscious and in my family, right? But sometimes there are just these unconscious biases that you grew up with mm-hmm. where you're anti-black, right? Like, you know, locking your doors when a black person walks by, you know, like it's forcing yourself to be conscious of these decisions that you do. So I think for me, a personal commitment is also working on my biases when it comes to anti-blackness and then also having these difficult, difficult conversations with my immediate family, right? I think that sometimes it's so hard for our parents' generation to understand, like, why should we care about them when they didn't care about us? But I feel like our parents know the language of resistance and what resilience means, right? Like mm-hmm. we've, we've always been freedom fighters. We, yep. we have to remember our roots and my grandpa, even though they fled into the camps and uh, fled into the refugee camps in Thailand, he, his brothers would go back to Laos at night. They would sneak out of the refugee camps at night to go back to Laos to fight for their freedom, to fight for their land, to fight for their home, to fight for their sovereignty. Right. So this, this, this history of us resisting has always been there and we need to mm-hmm. connect that to what's happening with the black and brown communities right now in our country. So I feel like for me as a personal commitment, like it's continuing to challenge my parents, although these conversations always end up in tears and, you know, people being pissed off and angry at each mm-hmm. other and you end up hating each other for those five, 10 minutes. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I feel like I can't, it's just such a disservice to my to my black friends if I can't even do this within my family, right? Like, how can I yeah. preach that? Oh, black lives matter, and that you know we we need justice when I can't even have these hard conversations. Yeah, yeah. I I think I'll you know add to the closing too that you know I mean I think just what I said earlier like this is gonna be a marathon, right? Um, and I feel like how the values that we hold can't just be in the moment, but it has to be something that we're building on top of constantly. Um, Yes. And, you know, it it is really hard. I mean, it it is so easy to choose like, you know, hate, fear and being angry. Um, But with all the things that have happened, I think what is going to be the most important is just how we, how we react to it, like how, how we build from it a week from now. Right. Um, 
And I've been thinking a lot about our commitment as well, right? Like as an organization and the weight that we also hold, you know, um, what types of spaces we want to, what is it? Like, it's, it's, it's hard. Like, I think similar to what my niece said, right? Like, you know, we have friends, we have community members who are, um, are black, like, what is it? We have um, our coalition members, like, they're, how can we, you know, our community say one thing, and then, like, how can we also make sure that our communities are also accountable, right, to what they're saying? And so, um, like, that's been a lot on my mind. And, you know, we, we did, like, we did hold a unity circle uh, for folks in Sacramento, in response to, like, the Stefan um, Clark murder. Um, and like, there's been conversations of like restarting that. And I think the tough part is like, it's always the same people that show up, right? Like, you know, it's always the people that are already in the space. And so it's like a way to build from that is how do we build it? So it's more inclusive and also more reaches out to folks that may not have been part of the space, but being able to bring in more people, um, in the space that was not originally there. Um, and that that's always been really hard for our work, but just knowing that the work that we do moving forward is, is like, it's just so important. Yeah, that's so, thank you, Nancy, so much for, um, for sharing that and really for taking time today to be a part of our podcast. Um, I think that this episode, it's going to be a continuous conversation. It doesn't end here. There's a lot of processing to do still, especially because our community is hurting. Uh, the Black community is hurting. Like there's so much pain. And I know that it's so important to continue to have these conversations so that, you know, so I hope that you listeners at home, you're having these conversations and you're making these personal commitments with uh, for yourself as well and with your family, friends, communities. Um, and I think that, you know, our podcast, we're also committed to continue talking about how we can address anti-Blackness within the Hmong and other Southeast Asian communities. Uh, these conversations will continue to happen because we know that there's still so much work to do. Yes, there's there's been so much progress and we understand that there's been a lot of coalition building, but we know that, you know, just recently, just looking at all of these social media um, comments, right? There's so much work to do to really address anti-Blackness within our community and really further build solidarity um, across all racial lines. Um, so thank you everyone for really being vulnerable and to opening, um, you know, your thoughts and and how you're processing everything that's been happening with us. So um, thanks everyone for tuning in and we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks, Nancy. Thanks, Hip. Happy last day of APAM. This is a great way to close it out. <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate yeah, the that's conversation. That's true. <sighs>